or it's timed out? Is that, you does can that just, matter? No, just click the OK button. Thank you. Hi, everybody. This is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, May 25th, 2010. Our special guest is Kathy Davidson. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Steve. You're going to see this slide again, but I put up both versions of the book because it created complete confusion for me late at night one night. <laughs> it's made confusion for everyone, I'm afraid, including for the authors. Very funny. But we're sure glad to have you here. So uh, Future of Education is sponsored by Illuminate, my employer, and the project I work on is called Learn Central. Kathy, I'm going to turn your mic off just for a second because I'm getting uh, echo. But it is, uh, we are sponsored by Learn Central as part of Illuminate, and that's the project I work on. It is a free social network for educators, and we encourage you to come and play around. It does have Illuminate baked in. Coming up on Future of Education, June 17th, Nancy White's going to talk about networks and communities. You'll notice we're taking a little bit of a break. July 6th, Heidi Hayes Jacobs on Curriculum 21. July 8th, Ted Coldery on Teachers as Partners. July 14th, this is new, Niru Kosla on the CK12 uh, organization, the Open Books Project. Uh, and then lots more fun, Peggy Sheehy, Charles Fidel again on Neuroscience of Learning. David Wood, this is not a normal guest, but this guy's written a book called Get Paid for Who You Are. And I'm fascinated just by this whole concept of individual branding and, and what will happen to students and how they will brand themselves. You can see uh, Carol Dweck on August 19th, uh, Kathleen Cushman, uh, on Fires in the Mind. Lots more fun stuff coming up, including um, Jim Burke, who rescheduled for October 26th. So if you were looking forward to Jim Burke, that's rescheduled to October 26th. If you've missed the show, please do know that the recordings are up at futureofeducation.com. Our MP3 server's been down for about a week, and hopefully it will be up tomorrow. So if you've been looking for the podcast feed or the MP3 files, they should be back quickly. The full Illuminate files are still linked there from the um, Learn Central links. Saturday, June 26th is EduBloggerCon. If you're going to ISTE and you're willing to come a day or two early, please do consider coming to our all-day unconference for those who are interested in social media and education. Media and education. It is free. Uh, ISTE supports us by giving us free Wi-Fi in the space. It is held in the uh, Colorado Convention Center, so a lot of fun every year at JubloggerCon on June 26th. This year, for the first time, Open Source Con. Same concept, same building, same wireless but a group of people interested in open source software. You are allowed to go between the two conferences. They are on conferences, so you can move around as much as you'd like. But that should be a lot of fun. We've had an open source pavilion at ISTE, for, or NECC ISTE, for the last four years. And we have a great audience of people who are interested in open source software, so I hope you'll come and participate in that if that's your interest. Again, Saturday, June 26th, for free. The Global Education Conference has been announced. This is November 15th to 19th. This is a virtual conference online, multiple time zones, multiple languages, multiple tracks. Should be a blast. Getting great support from all kinds of organizations. Hopefully, this is going to be a momentous event. If this is your first time in Illuminate, this is a participative environment. We're sure glad to have you here, and we want you to participate. There are a couple of different ways to do so. At the bottom of your participant window, you'll see uh, some emoticons, a clapping hand, a smiling face, confused look, or a thumbs down. The big one with the green up arrow is how you raise your hand to ask for the microphone. So when you want to actually take the microphone and ask Kathy a question, you raise that hand and we'll give you the mic. Please make sure your mic is configured before you do so. It's easy to do that. Just go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard if you think that you might like to ask a question later. Or if you've been in the environment before and you know you're good, then we'll just give you the mic. Um, I'm going to now give you a chance. Obviously, you can participate by putting notes in the chat. And do go up to View Layouts and switch yourself to the wide layout. You'll have a better experience uh, in the wide layout than you are uh, in the regular layout. And Durf just tweeted that uh, I need to check the MP3 server. That MP3 server is down. And uh, hopefully, we'll be back up tomorrow. OK, this is a map. To the left of the map, you should see a wand with a red star at the end. You can click on that wand, and then you can click on the map and let us know where you're listening from. And feel free to shout out in the chat as well. Very cold in Lima. 
North Carolina, Tampa, Florida, Adelaide. You know, I just love the worldwide nature of this technology. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about it tonight. Anyway, lots of fun people here. 57 people here, Kathy, to listen to you so far. I think I'm sure our numbers will grow, but you have a nice, healthy audience, and uh, we should have a lot of fun here. Okay, I'm going to move on from this slide, but thanks for putting yourself up. If you're listening to the recording, we're sure glad to have you listening as well. So, Kathy, I really did have to laugh at this. Uh, late at night, I completely worried that I had blown it. I'm going to turn my webcam off so we can just see you. But did I use the wrong title? You're going to have to turn your mic back on. Did I use the wrong title? Did I mess up? What, what was I thinking? What, you know, what was going on? And here, I, then I realized you actually have two different titles. It's, t it's terrible. Um, the, the real book is The Future of Thinking. And halfway um, in the process, it, you know, it was a collaborative online book. We had it online for almost a year. Actually, it's still online, accepting comments. We held workshops all over the country and invited people to come. And so we put together this book collaboratively. And halfway through, MacArthur said, could you give us a little report on what's going on? So we wrote the report, which was the future of learning institutions in the digital age. We didn't realize then that it would have a different title in the actual book, but for ISBN technical reasons, they wanted us to change the title. And then we were pretty surprised when it came out and had a cover that looked almost exactly like the first one. So we figured it was for it was an IQ test for our readers to try to keep straight what these two books are. I, I wish we could just get rid of the report right now, because uh, one is about a 90-page report. The other is a 350-page book. They're both free. You can download either one. They're going to confuse bibliographers for centuries to come. <laughs> well, OK, so and in short, the future of learning is the shorter one. If it you is. want to download the 50 to 80 page one, that's the future of learning. And the future that's of right. thinking it's the, is the it's a condensation. One. And here we are on the future of education. Our, our audience is going to be completely confused. I know. I know. I'm sorry. It's, um, what can I say? It's um, old school publishing and all of its confusion. Let's just rename everything tonight the future of everything. I think we the future of everything now. sounds exactly right. The future of everything. Okay, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what's brought you to this project? Well, my path is that I've got many paths that brought me to the project. One, um, my actual field is as a historian of technology, and I wrote a book many years ago called Revolution in the Word, The Rise of the Novel um, in America. And the novel at the time of the American Revolution was basically the video game of the 18th century. The last great information age was at the time of the American Revolution when mass printing is invented. It's steam-powered presses, uh, machine-made paper, machine-made ink. And for the first time, poor people, working class people, could own books, not just a Bible, but novels, this new popular form. And so I was very interested in the relationship between technology, literacy, mass education, democracy, um, interactivity, and community. And so when the internet happened, I thought, my, I've seen this before. Uh, and was able to take my historian's eye and look at the future of education now in this new digital age. And uh, I think it's given me a different way of listening um, to the comments about um, education and, and all of the kind of utopian or dystopian comments people make about what technology will lead to. Because Thomas Jefferson made many of those comments about the novel and mass printing at the time of the American Revolution. Yeah, you hear those stories of the novel being considered a very negative thing, that the factory girls were reading them. Uh, does, does that come, is that in your material? Is that where totally, we ultimately yes. get that? That's exactly right. And what I did is I actually went back and found those copies of novels in the attics of historical societies and read what little girls, what those factory girls were writing in the margins of the novels and was able to give a real demography of the, of the, the readers themselves to try to understand what they were doing. And in many ways, they were trying to talk back to the founding fathers, saying, we're not in the Constitution, but we exist. And I think in many ways, that's what the democratization of the internet is doing, too. It's allowing many of us to have a voice in this new educational form without necessarily having an authority figure 
telling us what we are or aren't allowed to say. So one of the things I love thinking about is change and how change takes place. And I think some of the reactions that we saw to social networking three to five years ago have undergone a little bit of a transformation. Would you agree in the same way? Yes, and um, I'm, I, I think we all, you as well, um, and many of your um, listeners take pride in making that change happen. I think even three and five years ago, games were all evil, social networking was terrible, it was um, going to make us susceptible to perverts and tyrants and turn us, ruin all of our attention, it was going to destroy culture as we knew it, it was making us the dumbest generation, all of that blah blah blah, all of that kind of punditry, which again reminded me very much of what founding fathers were saying about the novel in the 18th century. And I think now people are looking more at, the po at many of the more positive aspects. And that's not to say there aren't negative aspects too, but we're also looking at the positive learning aspects of social networking. Seems like that's just kind of a natural human tendency. And it's probably wrapped up, I think, with what I believe is your kind of interest in stories, too, and sort of the stories we tell ourselves about what's going on. I think that's exactly right. Um, I was thinking about this recently. Um, this is an analogy. Um, lately, a lot of people have been saying that um, uh, the last president kept us safe from terrorism after the horrible attack of 9-11. And, of course, what happens is when you look backwards, you can say he kept us safe because it happened in that time period. There were, weren't subsequent successful terrorist operations. Whereas the future looks terrifying because we can't control it. And um, that analogy is just simply to mean that the past always is looks like it's finite and finished and therefore controllable. The future always looks indefinite and that's both hopeful and frightening. Um, but we have to remember that no matter what happens, it's always that way. Um, a friend once at a, a decision point in my life when I was deciding between jobs, a friend said to me, just remember six months from now you're going to look back and say, wow, I didn't make the right decision, did I? I really should have tried the other job. And she said, and remember at that moment that whatever you decided, you would be saying that six months from now. And I think that's the clarity of hindsight and the fearfulness of, of, of looking ahead. And it's, that's the, the nature of change. I'm fascinated by that example. Because <laughs> I, I almost always say the exact opposite thing, ah. which is in six months, so many things will have happened that you would never have happened if you didn't take that path. Think about how great it will be. Oh, it's true. I, I, I agree. I, I'm somebody who tends to be a change embracer, but I've found over time you and I may not be the, <laughs> that may be typical. Many people are very fearful of change. Okay, so this, uh, uh, we've, we've got a, a lot of interesting ground to cover, and certainly, you know, if I miss a question in the chat, please repost it or know that you can raise your hand when we get to the Q&A. And we'll try and get the Q&A early tonight. But uh, one of the interesting things about this for me is that some of what's happening is so fundamentally different that it feels as though it's hard for those stories to catch up and that there's a little bit of a sense of a crisis of meaning. Uh, it's the combination for me of uh, changes in our beliefs about how education takes place and changes in our beliefs about how work should take place and all sort of happening at the same time. Do you sense that we're, ha that we're in a little bit of a crisis moment? Yeah. Actually, my next book, um, which is coming out next year, um, is called Now You See It, um, The Science of Attention in the Classroom at Work and Everywhere Else. So we're completely on the same wavelength. Um, I, I actually, again, this is a historian's perspective. Robert Darton, the great historian, says there's only been really four major information ages in all human history. And he says the first one begins with the invention of writing in 4000 BC, Mesopotamia, the great cradle of civilization. Um, the second one, he says, is the invention of, the, of movable type. And that happens in 10th century China and um, Renaissance Europe with Gutenberg. The third is the one I just mentioned at the, uh, at the end of the 18th century, the time of the American Revolution with mass printing, which allows um, middle class and working class people to have access to print in a way never dreamed of before. 
The fourth one is now. That is momentous. You know, if you think about all the ways that human interaction, human communication, the globalization of knowledge, um, all of those things have changed. We are in a really momentous time. I guess I think of it the other way around, that given how momentous everything is, it's astonishing that we're doing as well as we did. Um, I like to say that we've had a hundred years to separate work from leisure, um, to separate, um, to make hierarchies of work, to make the time clock, um, you know, a punch card in the time clock where work begins and school begin at eight in the morning and end at four or five at night. Uh, none of those are part of agrarian ways of life. We had to learn those behaviors. And we've only really had 20 years, um, you know, with the internet and the World Wide Web, even less than that in a, in a mass popular way, to learn new behaviors. And we haven't done it yet. We haven't come up with the protocols for the 21st century. We're still living by many of the protocols of the machine age, even though we've entered a new digital age. So I think it's uh, Clay Shirky who uh, describes that the period after the advent of the printing press was chaos. Uh, is that has that been your historical perspective as well, or that there that there was chaos in institutions that had been dependent on certain ways of doing things? Um, the, if you call the Protestant Reformation chaos, many people have noted yes that in fact um, print allowed one of the major major religious institutions uh, revolutions of all time to happen. Uh, actually, in the 18th century, with mass printing, there's revolution everywhere all over Europe, not just in the US, but all over Europe, of course in Haiti and the Caribbean. Um, it's also a great time of revolution. Um, you know, so that's, a, that's, you know, and of course, even with the first one, um, with writing, Socrates was thought writing was a terrible thing. He thought civilization was going to go to the dogs once writing was invented. He thought the human mind would never be as rich uh, once writing was invented because you didn't have that testing of the oral capacity for memory and being able to dialogue and have debate face to face. It does feel though in the last few years that, that, there, that the story is changing. And I really noticed this when I had uh, John Taylor Gatto on as a guest. And I would have classified him five years ago as a pretty radical thinker that very few people paid attention to. And he fit in really, really well with Anya Kamenetz and other people who, and uh, uh, Seth Godin and other people who had yeah. been on the show. And I thought, well, we've actually, so things have changed in the last few years. I think we're on the, I think we, things are changing. Um, the thing that has probably changed the least, and this is, you know, really what we're talking about um, tonight, is education. Um, Virtually, I've done a lot of research this year, and this is really for my new book, not for the two confusing ones um, that we, we were talking about, but for my new book, I've done a lot of um, research this year on the creation of the multiple choice test, for example. That's another thing that happens just about the same time as the Model T, um, and also designed for efficiency. And we now make that system that was literally designed to train children for the machine age, we now use that as the way we require in our national public education system the testing of kids for the digital age. That makes no sense at all. Um, we have to change that. And um, I, you know, I, I think we're on the verge of that, that. I don't know any parent, I don't know any educator, I don't know any principal, any teacher who loves the end of grade tests um, that are required now. And uh, I think partly it's because there's a mismatch between the kind of learning required in those tests and the kind of thinking that kids need today. So, so change is a really difficult topic. And uh, you, know, you, you say several things in, in different places about change. One, I heard in a, in a link you sent me today, the recording of that uh, talk you gave, where you say, I think we should just take a year off. Yes. Right? <laughs> take a year off. But what's and I mean everybody. I don't mean teachers. I mean every teacher. Every I, mean, I came up with that in the middle of the talk, and afterwards I thought that was a good idea. You know, it's never going to happen. But I think everybody, every teacher, every student, every educator, maybe every parent, needs to just take the year off, and I mean worldwide, and say, okay, we have this amazing new worldwide web that we can connect to. What's the best way to think about learning for our kids who are learning Pokemon at age five? You know, the kids are already learning that, and then they get to first grade, and we have to teach them how to unlearn what they've already been learning. It's a, a, we, we radically need to change our educational system. 
So what I, part of what I find so interesting about this is that in order for change to take place, I feel like there has to be this messy discussion that we that we are have to be willing to go in saying we don't know what the end result's going to be. Here's what we're seeing, and dialogue with people who maybe previously haven't been in the conversation, and and that's so interesting to me because it's saying, okay, we're that that takes a willingness to actually kind of give in to the vulnerability of being in an unknown and talking together and figuring it out together. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I don't know if you followed. I did this crazy experiment this year um, with a blog called How to Crowdsource Grading that literally was picked up by AP. It went, went around the world. Um, some people liked it. Most people hated it. And um, But I really thought it was important to try um, something controversial precisely to get that conversation going. Um, I, didn't, I don't think the system I came up with was the answer, but unless you interrogate the question, unless you really sort of punch holes through an existing system, you're never going to actually have a breakthrough. You're never going to have um, change. You have to do something monumental or at the very least something definitive that you can work against and, and, and have some pushback from. Um, and controversy from. I, I like the messiness. Even though sometimes it's not very pleasant that people calling you names and so forth. Well, when I heard you talk about that crowdsourcing grades in the lecture I listened to today, I immediately thought of some of the business practices that I've been thinking about from the 80s, the total quality mm -hmm. movement. And what's kind of intriguing to me about this movement, this moment in education and the total quality movement was in total quality there seemed to be a recognition that the workers had to be participants in the creation of the processes. And that's a piece I keep thinking gets missing from our current discussion, this, this need for teachers to actually be part of defining the solution. And I don't oh. hear it as much as I'd like. I agree. I actually think that's why my, my fantasy is to have all teachers and all students and all parents take a year off and really think about this together. I think kids have to be involved in the conversation too. I mean, I think they're like the workers in some ways too. But I hate it. I mean, it's my pet peeve when I hear um, teachers condemned as the problem. Teachers are not the problem. I mean, that's not to say there aren't bad teachers and there aren't great teachers, but as a whole, as a group, teachers aren't the problem. It's that we have an educational system that often puts teachers in this role of being the sole, uh, sole people held responsible for the quality of education. And that's got to be wrong. We're all responsible for the quality of education. Well, it's like having all of the responsibility and none of the authority. Yes. You know, and every like other. Like manager. Right. Well, but it, but in most companies, you actually have the ability to work together on projects in a yes. defined goal that you you know you establish. And that's what I heard when you talked about crowdsourcing. Was I heard echoes of this participative work environment that seems to me it would be valuable to be thinking about in education. Well, I want you to kind of tell the, your story which is the story of the reports. You're, t you're telling a story here, and what is it? The story is um, several years ago, David Deal Goldberg, my co-author, um, and I, um, were at, we were at a meeting of, um, at the Mellon Foundation of Directors of Humanities Institutes. I was a, at the time something called Vice Provost for Interdisciplinary Studies at Duke University, which is a fabulous job that one of my bosses described as breaking things and making things. It was a wild job. I was the first one to have that position, and I was kind of a R&D person. It would be an industry. But I had also created a humanities center at Duke on a new model of taking what we, of thinking of the humanities as that which makes us human. So it's fundamental to everything we do in the sciences, social sciences, all over. Um, David and I were at a meeting at the Mellon Foundation of Directors of Humanities Institutes, and um, we went around the room and absolutely everybody said technology is terrible. We humanists have to fight technology. And David and I, who we'd only met once before at opposite ends of the room, said no. If we have changed the ways humans communicate, this is the greatest time ever for the humanities. I mean, we've just gone through a fundamental change in everything humanists do, how we communicate, how we interact, what it means to think together, what it means to learn together, um, what it means to create community online. Those are huge, important questions. We need to embrace this, not run away from it. And uh, we were so kind of revived 
compiled for saying that, that we started this renegade organization, which is, has a kind of a god-awful name. Um, Haystack is what we call it, but it's not H-A-Y-S-T-A-C-K. It's an acronym, H-A-S-T-A-C, which means, get ready, Humanities, Arts, Science, and Technology Advanced Collaboratory. Fortunately, everybody just says Haystack. Um, we're now about 5,000 people um, and institutions worldwide. Uh, you just sign up on the website. You can blog. We have 130 students um, who um, we're encouraging to be the next generation of teachers and thinkers in the world. And it's really just about how we can network learning. Um, from that project, we then did the Future of Learning Institutions project where we wrote a little bit about what Haystack stands for, but also talked about the ways the institutions we currently live in, with all of their, their all of their limitations, can also be what we call mobilizing networks. Um, by that we mean that even within the most conventional institution, you find people who have discontent. You find people who have ideas that operate um, supported by that institution, but also in many ways is pushing that institution to do something more. So um, what we did was we wrote a draft of our idea. We put it up on the Institute for the Future of the Book website. We invited comments for a year. We held forums for a year. And then we tried to put it together into a, a book version um, that um, I think has the most unusual contributors page ever. I think there's about 200 names on our contributors page. Uh, we take responsibility for the basic ideas and for synthesizing the conversation, but we try to give credit to everybody, even people with funny names like Red Hook and other kind of acronyms and uh, um, pseudonyms that people use. But that's, that's the basis for it, is really saying that we need all fields together, thinking together and customizing and collectively um, uh, editing one another's ideas, uh, crowdsourcing ideas in order to figure out the future of education. So you're protective, I think, of the institution, right? I mean, I, I, you quote uh, John C. D. Brown and the concern about endism and maybe taking things to the extreme. But I also hear you saying, let's not forget that the institution is really important here. Well, I think that it's, um, the reason I like John Seeley Brown's concept of endism, endism is, endism is basically the idea that something new has happened and everything that we know has changed. And the problem with endism is, one, it's a lie. Um, you know, I'm, just because there's an internet, I still live in a house, I still eat, I still have a family, I still go to school, I you know, do the things I've done before. Endism, uh, one new invention doesn't change everything in life. Um, and what happens is if you believe it changes everything is you often miss what actually does change. In other words, by being too hyperbolic about a transformation, you often miss the real texture and interesting um, features of what is changing and what, all the things that are changing around you. Um, for me, what's interesting is institutions, this is another Clay Shirky comment. He has a great comment that he says, institutions are designed to preserve the problem they were designed to solve. And that's a kind of that's a pretty cool little aphorism. Um, that I and I think it does tend to be the, the the case that institution we create institutions to give us a kind of stability, and the downside is they sometimes stabilize too much. Um, on the other hand, they are are. I mean, I know more people at the workplace than I do probably any place else. It is the place where I have a community. And I can use that community to also change the institutions that I'm part of. I don't know if that's a, I'm ambivalent about institutions. How about that? Well, um, I, that I, I live through. within them, and I've been against them my entire career. Well, I think one of the intriguing things for me that's come out of uh, some recent sessions that we did, especially one with Leonard Wax, is that there has to be a path to change. You just don't go from A to C. There has to be some B that lets you get to C. And so institutions hold the key to, to adoptive paths. They're, they're, you know, change isn't going to happen overnight completely. And so you're going to have to have ways in which change will attract and appeal to a certain body of people where they will actually implement. And I, I would see that as being a significant part of the value of institutions. I think that's right. I think that's right. Even. Um, so for example, we created Haystack, which is about as non-institutional as it can be. Um, you know, you sign up to the website, you're a member of Haystack. As long as you 
follow the community rules, you can chart a path. And many people have come into the organization and really become leaders because they have the energy to become leaders. And we, we value that very, very much. Um, at the same time, Duke University pays the light bill and, uh, and they pay my salary even though I don't really get you know, relief time or anything else to do Haystack. They support me. You know, if I'm doing Haystack, uh, there's something else I'm not doing at Duke and they like me doing it. So uh, you know, even though here I'm in this institution, um, I have Haystack which um, I blog in practically every day and often am critical of institutions. I mean, I think my most recent blog my goodness, it criticized our HR policy. <laughs> you know, how do you give, how do you criticize an institution more than criticizing HR policy? Um, you know, so it's both I am and I'm not an institutional citizen. And I think we all are in different ways. So I, I, that comes through loud and clear. At the same time, I'm going to read a quote from you that sort of fascinatingly sort of played the other side. Our learning institutions, for the most part, are acting as if the world has not suddenly, irrevocably, cataclysmically, epistemically changed, and changed precisely in the area of learning. We are not clear if this is so much an ostrich time for learning institutions or, to use a different animal metaphor, a deer in the headlights time. Did I really say that? <laughs> um, actually, I, I actually believe that. It does dismay me. It really dismays me that we're training students, that our educational system now trains students for our past, not for their future. That, I think, is a tragedy. Um, and um, we're missing such an amazing opportunity. Um, and, uh, you know, worldwide, the U.S. educational system, the Anglo-American educational system has had a tremendous impact so that the standardized form of testing, um, defining what learning disabilities are, um, graded schools and um, uh, different kinds of um, segregation of who has knowledge and who doesn't have knowledge, who counts, who doesn't. Um, the system of saying that college, implicitly that college preparation is the only way to advance learning when in fact there's lots of ways you can learn that don't involve um, going on to college as we know it. Um, all of those things are missing a tremendous opportunity. And if we as educators can't figure out how to make radical changes, how can anybody else? Um, you know, it's one reason why even though I'm a college professor and I've spent most of my, all of my career in higher education, I'm keenly interested in K-12 education now um, as well. I just, it pains me to say, to have a five-year-old who plays Pokemon um, and is in the course of playing Pokemon is learning to do a little code, is learning that le learning is fun, is um, reading at a nine-year-old's grade level uh, uh, um, level as marked by our school system to and tests, um, and then goes to first grade and has to basically unlearn all of those skills, um, including the skill of collaboration. Um, online, the kid is learning how to play well with others, and then they get to school, and individual achievement is the crowning, crowning glory. Um, we need to do a lot of, as Toff, uh, Alvin Toffler says, this is a century where we need to do a lot of unlearning and educators have to take the lead. I think we will. I think we're on a moment of change, as, as you said at the beginning of the show. I think we're at a moment where things are changing. Um, I hope so. And I'm, I'm doing everything. We all, we're all doing everything we can to make that change happen. Well, and you talk a lot about the importance of rethinking even our vocabulary and the meaning of words and what's the history of a word. And, and I think what's fascinating to me is that I'm seeing my friends who are not involved in these discussions, just dark, casual social acquaintances, being much more willing to hear that message, even though it's no less, it's no more true than it was five years ago, that there's a receptivity to redefining their expectations for what school is. I think that's right. I think it's partly because We've all, even if we don't think our, our workplace has changed, if we think about it, we've all gone through tremendous changes in our lifetime. But we could walk into our kids' school, no matter what age we are, and we would know where the kid would be sitting, where the teacher would be standing. We'd know what the expectations were. 
Um, in fact, I always say that um, Ichabod Crane, right, from The Legend of Sleepy Hollow in 1820, um, the, who was parodied as a pedant in 1820 by Washington Irving, could walk into a modern classroom. He wouldn't know what electricity was, he wouldn't know what computers were, but he'd know exactly where to stand and what to say. Um, something is wrong with that, and I think people are, are sensing that something is vitally and desperately wrong. Um, uh, there's a mismatch, too big a mismatch between the way they're seeing their kids learn at home and the way they're seeing their kids learn at school. So I've talked about my brother on the show a couple of times. He's a professor of innovation and he actually is working a lot with how networks are related to innovation. Mm. And it's just a huge irony to him that he is measured individually for yes. tenure. And yet his specialty is in developing networks for innovation. And he, it, it just boggles his mind that he can't get credit for doing the really innovative network things. I know, I know. Um, Haystack, by the way, has, um, is working with the Modern Language Association on a new set of guidelines for online publication, collaborative publication, and how those things can count for tenure. But it's a slow process. People are very, very slow. Um, to give up. I, I always say grading and credentialing, and credentialing of course is a form of grading, are the most conservative features of, and the most reactionary features of any system and the slowest to change. They will change, but I tell your brother I feel his pain. I, um, I think it's so ironic and um, I find myself often telling my best and most adventurous graduate students, oh, sigh, do the individual work to protect yourself and do great collaborative work. And then once you get tenure, just do what you want to do. Um, you know, but, but that you have to protect yourself because you don't know who is going to be on the other end of the grading process. And uh, when you don't have the power, you have to do things you don't want to do to protect yourself. But my goodness, I hope there are more and more of us um, who are in positions of power who are willing to make those changes. I certainly am, and I know a lot of my friends are, and a lot of people in Haystack are. And uh, that's, again, one of the reasons we created Haystack. David and I are both solidly, ridiculously solidly credentialed in our own fields. And we thought it was important for people who have that kind of credibility within their own fields to say this change has to be respected and honored. And we have to make changes in our credentialing system. So my oldest daughter is uh, just about to graduate from college. And I had a very scary thought the other day. Uh, it, it occurred to me that all of a sudden, the person who has to be taught is now at a huge disadvantage. And it seems like that's a, an enormous paradigm shift, that the person who is able to actually go out and teach themselves now has unlimited opportunities. But the person who says, I have to take a class to learn this, is at an enormous disadvantage. Am I exaggerating that? Um, I think you're probably 75% right. And by that I mean, I think there's certain kinds of learning that we still like to take from a teacher. Um, uh, an example I often give is I was in a very, very bad accident seven years ago and, and really had to fight to keep, I just touched my poor arm, to keep my arm. And uh, it was touching, literally touch and go for a while. And I still am in physical therapy, um, a Pilates class taught by a genius um, uh, former dancer who's also a physical therapist. And she sort of uses all different kinds of methods. I still go to her once a week because I cannot see what I can't do with my arm. She can see what I can't do and push those things so that I continue to have um, nerves and blood flow and things that keep my arm working in a way that to me seems normal. It isn't normal. It's um, probably only about 80% capacity, but to, I experience it 100% capacity. Only a professional who can see me can get me that last 20% of the way. I think that's true with lots of forms of learning. Um, but that first 80%, that's all me. I'm the one that does the exercises. I'm the one that pushes, uh, I'm the one that knows how to learn, but there's still that 20% that I don't, I, I think because of the way attention blindness works, again, that's my next book, not the last one, but the way attention blindness works, we need others 
not necessarily teachers. Sometimes it happens through what Haystack calls collaboration by difference. But you need eyes outside of yourself to train back on you to help you help you to learn. Does that make sense? It does, and I and I don't necessarily know that we're actually saying different things. Uh -huh. But I think again, this is part of that cultural dialogue and of retelling stories and and of you know trying to figure out what this new world of learning is going to be like. Okay, so we're going to shift to Q and A. Yes, uh, wonderful. This is, this is a great opportunity. If you would like to ask a question of Kathy, and you've put it in the chat, uh, and I've missed it, please post it again, uh, and we'll give you the chance. If you'd like to take the microphone, use the hand with the green up arrow. Let us know that you're interested in taking the mic, and we will uh, actually ask your question out loud. So while we're waiting for a question, uh, I've been kind of intrigued at uh, a little bit of a theme that's gone through some of the interviews, Sir Ken Robinson, Tim Magner, um, and some others, where suddenly people are talking about theater and liberal arts and you know the kinds of things that were sort of out of fashion during the period of everybody's going to business school. Uh, and it feels like you're, you're you're calling that the humanities, right? Is that is that it the is same what thing? Yes, I I define the humanities very broadly. I think um, that whole two cultures of science and humanism is another product of that machine age, which was very bent on making separations and binaries. I can't imagine anything worse um, than thinking of the World Wide Web without thinking about theater and play and narrative and story and interactivity and the way we build and think together. Um, you know, um, in Weaving the Web, Tim Berners-Lee talks about growing up as a little kid in England, in Manchester, uh, when his parents worked on the first commercial mainframe computer and would come home at night and the dinner table conversation would be his parents saying, isn't it crazy that people think this static, number cruncher, this thing we call a mainframe computer, is like the human brain. And that was the so much the paradigm of the brain in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was kind of a, this massive data cruncher. Um, and they would say it's exactly not what a human brain is. A human brain is about constant learning and constant change. A mainframe computer is hardwired. It doesn't change. Um, and the little baby Tim Berners-Lee grew up thinking, how could you make a computer that really would be like the human brain, that would be as interactive and as much a learning instrument as the human brain? HTML and the World Wide Web and the infinitely open, customizable World Wide Web is what he came up with. Um, computation, in the modern sense of the World Wide Web, is about learning. It's about all of us learning and contributing together. That's that's humanism. Um, you know, that's not just that's not just about technology. That's about human nature and how you uh, the yearnings of human nature. Um, we're all we, we keep being we keep getting surprised. You know, um, two Harvard kids make Facebook and everyone says, well, it's just about narcissism. No, it isn't. It's about you know, all of us living in a world where we're disconnected and suddenly we can be connected again. Um, a couple kids in San Francisco invent Twitter and people say, oh, that's like telling your friend you had a tuna fish salad sandwich for lunch. No, it isn't. It's billions of people wanting to be able to tell people about what's urgent and important for them and being able to communicate that. Um, it's, it's marvelous um, how this is how the inventions of our era have allowed us to be in touch with a human nature so different from the human nature of the machine age. It's really inspiring to me. I can get a little misty-eyed about human nature again. And I know there's horrible things and bad things. You don't need to tell me about that. But there's also some amazing and remarkable kinds of community uh, that we're seeing in this information age. Well, and you mentioned open source software and how and how it's really been a collaborative effort. And my interview series actually started doing interviews on open source software. That was yeah. the area that I was interested in. And I got to talk to a lot of those people. You're responsible for me ordering Tim Berners Lee Tim Berner Lee's book from Amazon. I'm going to invite him to be a guest. I don't actually think he's going to say yes, but I was really appreciative of your kind of 
pointing me to him when I felt like I hadn't really learned his story at all. I think he's, he's a great philosopher. He's not a great writer. Uh, he's a great code writer. He's a kind of a shy man, but he's really his thinking is very deep and profound. The thinking behind HTML is he, it's too bad there's no category for a Nobel Prize because if any human being is, deserves a Nobel Prize for changing the way we think in the world, it's certainly Tim Berners-Lee. Okay, so we've gotten some questions. Robin says, what advice do you have, Kathy, for me working with high school overburdened teachers in professional development workshops, helping them to see the possibilities with new media and tapping into the larger conversation? Oh, I have such sympathy for high school teachers, um, for all teachers. It's such an overburdened job. And I know so many who just are saying, no, don't tell me anything more. I can barely hang on to what I'm doing now. That's, like, that's exactly why I think we all need a year-long sabbatical. Um, I think the situation, these, the year-end testing especially, the way we um, micromanage teachers is horrific. Um, in the new book I'm doing, I talk about the great inspiring teachers of the digital age. And one of the people I talk about is um, uh, a teacher I knew in a one-room schoolhouse who taught during the 50s and 60s, long before the internet existed, but who had the freedom um, to really make creative interactions with students without either the helicopter parents or the end of grades or the kind of evaluation systems that teachers are subjected to now. Um, so that's my utopic thing. In the short term, in the short term, I think just finding other innovative, like-minded teachers and um, great principals to work for who are willing to support something a little risky. Um, in the last year, I spent a lot of time talking to parents and teachers and principals, and I'm amazed how often a principal who has their, his teacher or her teacher's back makes a huge difference in the morale of the teachers themselves. Um, but there, are, you know, it's hard. It's hard. Principals also have a lot on their on their shoulders. Um, it's a hard, hard time for teachers, and that to me is almost a bigger crisis than the dropout crisis. Is the dropout the teacher? teacher dropout crisis. Uh, the numbers are greater for teacher dropouts than for students. Um, there has to be a revolution in what we um, expect from teachers and how we support teachers. There has to be. And um, putting teachers in the prison guard middle manager position is a lose, 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 lose proposition. Um, and you know, that's not a good answer because I don't have a solution until we get rid of the system we have now. Here's a little bit of a follow-up question from Mark in Honolulu. Kathy, is it your vision that teachers will stop being content providers, specialists, and instead be facilitators for research, evaluators of what's on the net, given the need to differentiate between junk and what's valuable? Absolutely. I mean, in my future, that would be a great role for, for teachers. Um, to, and that does not mean you give up your own, you have to give up the specialization that that inspired you to become a teacher in the first place, whether on a, K a kindergarten level or the advanced level. Um, I find that the more my students are doing their own self-guided or group, group peer-guided research, the more I'm needed as a specialist. Um, I'm going to go back to that physical therapy example because I think it's a profound one. My physical therapist, when I'm taking my super-duper Pilates class, she doesn't tell me what to do. She guides me in doing it. She inspires me and pushes me to do more. That to me is a great role for a teacher in any situation. You know, if she just said, do it, I wouldn't improve. I wouldn't learn. The fact that she pushes me to do it, that she counts on me and on my own willpower to do it, um, is crucial, and that to me is an inspiring role for a teacher in any situation. I need all of her expertise for me to do what I need to do. Does that make sense? It's a collaboration. In other words, I'm collaborating with my teacher in that role as well. So Carol says, asks, I'm interested in your comments on disabilities. Her dissertation is focused on bringing an awareness among her learners that using disability services can serve to support their desire to grow in their baccalaureate studies, and it is okay to seek the awareness, help them over the bumps. Um, I 
I recently spent time, and I'm going to be a little guarded about this because admissions officers are very careful, so he asked me to speak off the record. Recently talked to an admissions officer at a very, very, very fine university, not Duke, but another university, who said among their best students, and these are the top 1% of college-bound students, about 50% of them have either been tested for a disability, have taken medications to help them improve their test performance, have at one time or another been diagnosed with a disability, or who are convinced they have some disability. That's sick. I'm sorry. That's just, we're in a moment where the norm is defined so narrowly that any deviation from the norm is stigmatized as some kind of disability, or even more perversely, for many kids, they think that if they have a label of a disability, they'll get some kind of an advantage. Um, they'll either get performance-enhancing drugs like Ritalin that at this moment in time with very limited research on what it does, we think improves in that, uh, performance on a, on a certain kind of test. We don't know what the long-term disabilities might be of that kind of testing or that kind of stigmatizing. Um, there certainly are real disabilities. Um, I happen in my own autobiography to have been 26 years old. I'd already had my PhD for two years. I was teaching at Michigan State. I walked into a friend's house. I saw her kid reading in this very peculiar way with a cover over her head reading horizontally. And I said, hey, that's how I read. And my friend said, well, my kid has learning disabilities. I think she does. She's having a hard time in school. I'm going to take her to be tested. And I said, I'll let me go along. And I found out at the ripe old age of just about, I was 26 going on 27, that I'm in the very, very highest level of dyslexics. Um, I joke that it's the only test I ever got a perfect score on. Um, I didn't grow up labeled dyslexic. Um, uh, I probably thought I was an idiot savant because I was one of those math people who could just figure out math but couldn't count or add. But um, I think, I don't know what it would have been like to have been labeled um, as dyslexic my whole childhood. Um, I was labeled obstinate, and <laughs> being labeled obstinate has stood me in very good stead my whole life. I've been obstinate my whole life. Um, but I think we're in one of those moments where we also have to really reevaluate what we count as learning disability. Uh, for example, um, we know with attention deficit disorder, even the most extreme forms, that there are things that kids enjoy, such as gaming, where somebody who would test at the most extreme level for ADHD can expend tremendous attention on games. Are they, do they have ADHD or do they have ADHD for the things ADHD tests, um, like school, like attention in school? Um, I am not a very good gamer. Does that mean I have ADHD for game playing? Um, our standards are just, we need much more complex standards. Uh, we know three times that if you're an entrepreneur, you're three times as likely as the general population to be diagnosed with ADHD. Well, what does that mean? Um, does that mean you're ADHD, or does that mean that other people haven't been been tested for um, having disabilities in entrepreneurship, in entrepreneurial ability? Um, what is the what is the disability for not being an entrepreneur? We don't have a label for that. What do labels do to us? Um, as educators and as recipients of those labels. So Jen asks, how do we persuade admin in large institutions like public universities to join the revolution? First of all, we have to stop punishing them for not being the most static, um, martialized proponents of the counter-revolution. Uh, you know, if you're a failing school now, you get your money taken away. Um, you have no incentive, no incentive for being a revolutionary because the kind of revolutionary learning we're talking about is not tested in the end of grades. In fact, one of the tragedies um, I've seen in schools is the most creative teachers I've met. Uh, March comes around and they know they have to put away all their creative tools and get their kids ready for those end of grade tests that come in April and May. Because if the kids fail those tests, they fail everything. Um, the schools are punished, the teachers are punished, the students are punished. Um, one principal I met 
um, at the end of March this year said, it's the end of March, it's the nightmare season. I said, what do you mean? He said, literally every kid in this school is having nightmares that we're, they're going to fail the end of grades. And then he paused. He said, actually, every kid, every parent of the kids, every teacher is having nightmares. And then he paused again. He said, Kathy, I'm having nightmares. Um, you know, these are the, again, I hate to use this analogy, but it's almost as if these are the, the prison guards or the um, um, line manager that are making, having to enforce a system that they know is not real learning. Until we change the system and the penalties, there's no way they can afford. They would be irresponsible to be revolutionaries when their revolutionariness means their schools are going to suffer. It's tragic. That's tragic. So that would be sort of the argument that we need to find these pathways to adoption. That there, you're going to have to find places like in K-12 where online learning is certain needs, and then builds a school where they house the online learning students so that the child care is taken care of as well as the education. And you can see sort of short little steps that get you different places. Yes, and I think, you know, one thing, I, uh, Diane Ravitch has been very critical of the charter school movement, and some of the charter schools are abominable, but some of them are shining examples, and we need those shining examples. We really need success stories. Some of them are shining examples to all of us, including to the, you know, uh, Arnie Duncan and the, you know, the Secretary of Education that really radical revolutionary teaching and learning is what we need right now. Um, my favorite example is a school that I was in a very modest way involved with as part of the MacArthur Foundation's Digital Media, Media and Learning Initiative. It's a school called Quest to Learn in New York City. It's a public charter school that is entirely based on game principles, on game mechanics. A quite high percentage of the students in fact, have tested with learning disabilities, they're doing brilliantly now. Um, but everything in the school is based on game mechanics. So you're inventing a game, you're, you're inventing a quest, read Homer. Six, it's only sixth graders this year. Next year it's going to be open from sixth grade to high school, um, to sixth grade to twelfth grade. Um, but um, these are sixth graders reading Homer because you have to learn how, what a quest is. What better place to read a quest than Homer? Um, they're learning code, they're learning physics, they're learning calculus, all through game, game principles and game modification, uh, where you get immediate feedback uh, and an assessment that goes right to your learning. You, you learn, you master something, you get to go to the next level. Uh, the reward isn't time out from learning, the reward is learning harder. The reward, reward is being challenged even more. I, I think things like that are wonderful beacons to all of us, and they give us all examples that we can use with parents, with school boards, with principals, um, to make our lives more exciting and to inspire our most creative teaching. So I get to be poetic here. So Kathy, tonight you've been our beacon. I want to thank you for coming on. I, I, you, I think what you've done is really uh, helpful, and you're, you're being a great part of this cultural dialogue, and you are a voice that's needed and valuable, and we really appreciate it. So I'm clapping. I see some other people are going to clap there. I'm clapping for you. Thank really you. And back at you, I'm, I'm not sure I can clap and talk at the same time, <laughs> but I'm clapping to you and to all of your um, listeners and participants. Thank you so much. Yes, really terrific to have you as a part of the show and uh, want to recommend that people read uh, either of the reports. Uh, <laughs> thanks again to Learn Central, to um, Illuminate, and to C. Bloom and Associates who provide me with the book budget that allowed me to buy the Tim Berners-Lee book. Uh, coming up uh, on June 17th, Nancy White is our next show. Uh, the recording for tonight's show will be up later tonight. The MP3 version will not be up for at least a day, but we sure appreciate your being here and hope that those recordings make a difference for you. Thanks again, Kathy. Have a great night. You too. Thanks. Take care, Steve. Most appreciated. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Sure glad to have you here. You know the drill. You're welcome to stick around in the chat uh, for a few minutes. And we will microphone or talk. And then once we're done, we'll close the room out and get that recording going. Michelle, if I missed your hand up earlier, I really apologize. But I'm going to give you the mic now in case there's something you wanted to say. clapping.
want to take the mic, you can click the microphone icon in the audio area. Well, I sure enjoyed that quite a bit. Oh, I'm going to, uh, I meant to put up the link for the video that I watched today with Kathy speaking. That up somewhere so people can tonight. Steve, can you still hear me? I can still hear you. Ah, so are we still live? We're still live. Excellent. I'm, I'm not quite sure I understand how the applause works and, uh, on this. I'm looking at icons now. I just wondered if people felt my, yeah, because I'm always, I'm a perpetual learner. I'm always trying to figure out how to do better, so I'm happy for feedback. So, Kathy, I'm going to try and find that link that you sent today. If you have it handy, you could paste it into the chat, and then it will be as a part. Let me okay. see if I can do it. Did I just lose you? No, I'm still here. Ah, okay. Let me see if I can find the link. Many people will have left, but at least the link will be up in the chat recording. So we didn't get to talk about accounting, but there are several phrases that you use that I just have written down and loved, like cloned knowledge and iterative learning, coalescing of meaning and method. You do turn a phrase well. Thank you. So now I've got the link and I'm going to paste it. And where am I pasting it? Did I lose you? Sorry, my mic was off. In the chat area. In the chat area, of course. There you so go. So there's the link. Okay, so that's the link of you. It's pretty recent, right? It was in Sweden, I think, last week. This will tell you about technology. I got the link. I put it up. I used the program that I have that, that pulls down the video, converted it to audio all in the background, and then put it on my phone and listen to it while I was driving in the car today. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. That's really a talk from my new book as much as it is from my um, the other ones. Well, it's wonderful. It's actually oh. really, really wonderful. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm trying to put together a lot of um, things. And, you know, the, the Weaving the Web book by Tim Berners-Lee is, um, he wrote it with somebody. It's not always po poetic, but there's it's so interesting. I think we've gone very quickly over how profound the World Wide Web is as opposed to the Internet. The Internet's also profound. But what the World Wide Web allowed and that we've been given this incredible tool is just feels like we have to really embrace it in a different way. So I, I hope you enjoyed the book. It would be great if you came on the show. I will. You're getting questions. I don't know if you want to stay, if you have the time, because if you don't, I want you to feel free to go. But you are I actually getting some questions. I think you might questions. I'm very happy to answer questions. So you see the one from John there. I know that we're officially finished, but I want to pose this question since some of us are Those of us here are arguably proponents of high tech and ed. However, how do we navigate through the myriad obstacles of high stakes testing accountability when there are so many teachers with work that are not in favor of technology in elementary education, the collective voice is louder than the individual. I think it's very hard. And again, that's why um, um, things like Quest to Learn are important. Um, it's why this, the new book I've, I've written that will come out next year, it's, a, it's not an academic book. It's coming out from Viking Press. And in fact, it's going to be the first um, really next generation book. Um, Viking sealed the deal with um, Apple and it's going to be an iPad next generation book that's going to have different forms of testing in it and some game mechanics in it and retinal identification and all kinds of really clever things. But I think that'll get it a lot of attention. But I really um, highlight a lot of shining examples because I think we need powerful stories to go to our administrators and to parents. Um, I actually think the biggest weapon we have is parents 
who, one, are fearful that if their kids don't do well on tests, they aren't going to go to college. And so they're terrified of that because everybody's seeing the figures on the difference in income between those who have college and those who don't have college. Everyone's seen the unemployment figures for people who don't have college degrees. But also, I think parents also know how excited their kids are to be learning online and how excited and absorbed they are by their multimedia gameplay and other forms of play and how bored they are in school. And I think parents are a real agent of change. Organizing parents is a great way. Um, and finding teachers who need parents to support them is a great way to make change happen. I'm also very encouraged that Diane Ravitch, who is one of the, um, I don't know if she's been on your show or if she's coming on your show, but here she's one of the architects of No Child Left Behind. She now says the only people who profited by it were the test makers. Um, she's right. She's right. And that's great to have a voice as powerful of her as hers, especially um, across the political spectrum, um, talking out against it. So I have invited Diane, and I think she may come on. I think she's in. That would be hey, great. I think so too. And um, uh, you, you probably can think of other people who would be good for the series. So feel free to pop me a note. I will. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to think of names on the spot, but I will. I will think of some, and I'll, I'll, I'll pass them along. Uh, Howard Rheingold, I'm sure, has been on your series before. Have Howard you has a couple of times. And um, but I you know I'd love a connection with MacArthur as well. I feel like there's so much cool oh, material. Oh, have you ever out. have you had Connie Howell on? No. She's phenomenal. Oh, she's the she's the she's the inspiration behind the digital media and learning initiative, and she is so inspirational. Oh, she's she'd be a wonderful person to have on, and please tell her I suggested her. Are you you willing to make an introduction for me? I would be delighted to make an introduction. It can be short. But that would I be great. would be absolutely delighted to make an introduction. Let me make a note to myself, and I'll I'll do that. I'll do it when I get off. I'll I'll write her, and I'll copy you, and make the introduction right now. Now, and if you think of anybody else, I mean, this has really been a fun series because we've had such a variety of voices. And, um, I, I I hope that we're in some ways fulfilling this need to be talking. The, the I think it's great. I I really love what you do. And you have a, I, I know, you know, on this chat, I don't know how many people were actually on that I gather about 50 or so. Got up to over 70, I think. 70. And how many people do you think will will watch it by the end of the you know, we, we figure that two to three times as many people actually listen to it or watch it recorded. Uh -huh. uh, a lot of people, because there's a podcast stream, so a lot of people download through the podcast. That's excellent. Yeah, and of course you know me, the the uh, domain junkie that I am, futureofeducation.com. Um, you know, I actually own Learning 2.0. Really? At some, at some point, I thought it would be really fun to do, uh, you know, um, something maybe like what you've done with your conference, you know, but on a broader scale, a sort of a, a, you know, a, a future of education Learning 2.0 conference, where really, you know, can bring people in virtually talk about, okay, you know, where are we going at all levels? That would be fantastic. That's fantastic. So Sorry, I, I just wait. I, I heard someone walking in the background. It was my husband coming in. So. I promised you an hour, and I hate it when we go over, because I know that you have a regular things in your life to attend to. So thanks again. It was really great to have you on. And, uh, and Thanks for having me, Steve. And, and let's do something in the future. I, I, I think it would be great. Um, to be involved in Learning 2.0 and maybe have a Haystack meetup at Learning 2.0 or something like that. Good. Let me know. Terrific. Have a great night, Kathy. Take care. Take care. Bye. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye.